I didn't actually decide until early in my fourth year. At that point, I thought, you know, I started to think, hmm, you know, maybe pathology, you know, maybe I should think about that. And so I took a rotation, uh, like an elective in pathology and, and realized right away that it was way more complicated than the pathology class, you know, that we had taken. And I, I think it was at that point where once that decision was made, although it took me a long time to kind of get to that point, as soon as I had made that decision, it was like, oh, of course, why was I considering anything else? Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tracy Davis, who, in addition to being a dermatopathologist, is also a certified professional coach. Our discussion today is pretty wide ranging, so we'll talk about how she got into pathology and then into dermatopathology, and we'll look at digital pathology, AI, and teaching. And then we'll talk about how her experience with a coach inspired her to become one herself. We'll talk about happiness studies and her blog, The Happy Physician. All right, here we go with Dr. Tracy Davis. Most of the time when I, when I have people on the podcast, I try to go kind of all the way back to the beginning of their career because it's always interesting to see what, what was the inspiration for their, for your career path. And I want to do that with you. So it, kind of what was your inspiration just be, to become a doctor at the beginning? Yeah. You know, I think from an early age, I knew I was interested in science and biology and it wasn't until probably high school, I had the opportunity to take a human anatomy class. And one of the, the class projects was to go see a human cadaver dissection. And I remember coming back from that, just being thoroughly fascinated at sort of the the, the miracle of the body, you know, if you will, like how it all comes together and how it seems to come together perfectly in so many people. So, so that really, you know, I think set off my interest um, pretty early uh, for college. And at that point, I just started working towards, you know, moving in that direction. Okay. That, that makes sense. Uh, you, you didn't, during that, uh, like cadaver dissection that didn't, didn't find it kind of overwhelming or something like that. I know sometimes people on their first one that, that gets a little, uh, um, well, this was a, a fixed, you oh, know, okay. and so it wasn't an actual autopsy. And I think for sure, you know, it had some, some anxiousness, you know, kind of going, we knew that this was the class, um, you know, sort of field trip. And, but it was done, of course, it was done very professionally in, in the interests of um, academics and teaching young students. And it, it was, I, I think, I think the majority of the class was, um, you know, came away with the same uh, experience that I did in just that, wow, this is, this is really pretty amazing. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. So it was just that experience and that kind of started you on the path and you went what, like pre-med and that whole kind of uh, program. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I ended up, you know, so, so following in my interests of cancer bio or um, of uh, biology and, you know, just science, I ended up majoring in biochemistry with a split you know, minor and pursued a lot of different activities as an undergraduate. I, you know, worked in, I think, four different research labs, everything from an entomology lab to a neuro-oncology research lab. And, you know, really developed an interest for research at that point, 
too. And uh, I did some volunteer work and some shadowing with, um, with some two different doctors in my community just to kind of solidify that. Yeah. You know, this is, I want to put it all together. I, I had this great mentor when I was in college who I think recognized my interests in both research and medicine and introduced me to the concept of, of doing a combined MD and a PhD. And I, I think up until that point, I had thought, oh, I have to choose, you know, one or the other. And so, uh, <laughs> so I have him to thank for, for being a permanent student, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, it's been a great career. It's very, very interesting from, you know, a science and medical perspective. Sure, sure. Understand. And so then going into medical school then, was it the pathology from the beginning? Because, you know, a lot of people call it kind of the unknown field, like most people don't know about it until they sort of experience it. So what was your, what were your interests like as far as a specialty going in? Oh, right. Yeah. Pathology was definitely not on my radar screen when I started medical school. I thought I would be doing something like pediatric, um, you know, hemonc. And, you know, I was one of those students that really enjoyed almost all of the clinical rotations that I did. And it, I didn't actually end up deciding until fairly late, um, you know, in the medical school curriculum, that pathology was what kind of tied it all together for me. You know, so for instance, when, when I was, you know, when I was on surgery, the, the cases that I enjoyed the most were the oncology cases that I got to, you know, participate in. And when I was on, um, you know, doing a hemonc rotation, it was being able to go down to the pathology lab to look at the blood smears and, and things like that. So I think I was also heavily influenced because the way I did my training, it was split from the first two years, which were, you know, kind of your, your basic science years. And then I did my PhD in between my third and fourth year. I mean, sorry, my second and third year of um, med school. And, and then came back to do my, my last two clinical years. And while I did my PhD, you know, one of my mentors was a pathologist. And so I had a lot of, I think, influence um, from, from working with him and, you know, sort of seeing what it was that he was doing. Because, you know, at that time, I anticipated having a career where, where I was doing research and, you know, working in the hospital and teaching students, you know, kind of doing everything all at once. And, um, you know, Ray Nagel was one of my, um, one of my thesis advisors and he was, he was doing that, you know, and I thought, wow, that looks, that, that looks pretty great. I want to do that. So, so I think I probably have him to thank, you know, for, I, I guess for putting that vision in front of me, um, you know, moving forward. Is, is there like a moment or an experience where, I mean, looking back where you went, yeah, pathology is, is what I want to do. Yeah, I, I think early in my fourth year, at that point, okay. I thought, you know, I started to think, hmm, you know, maybe pathology, you know, maybe I should think about that. And so I took a rotation, uh, like an elective in pathology, and, and realized right away that it was way more complicated than the pathology class, you know, that we had taken. And I, I think it was at that point where, once that decision was made, although it took me a long time to kind of get to that point, as soon as I had made that decision, it was like, oh, of course, why was I considering anything else? 
more complicated than in the pathology course. And I've kind of heard that. I mean, obviously I'm not a doctor, but I've heard that from other people like pathology as it is taught in medical school is not representative of pathology as a field. Does that, does that make sense? Um, it does. You know, as a, a student, you're, you're seeing, you know, you're taught very classic examples of, you know, different types of tumors, for example, and different types of, um, you know, medical problems. And then you get into the real world. And, you know, I've, I quickly learned that things are not always textbook. Um, you know, so in pathology, we always like to say, oh, well, this one hasn't read the book and doesn't know which chapter it belongs into, uh, you know, <laughs> given like and, you know, so it's kind of fun because, you know, in, in many ways, I think of pathology as being kind of, um, you know, a detective of sorts. And, you know, certainly they're straightforward cases, but there are always cases where, you know, you, you have to think about them for a while and, and, you know, kind of dig in and find some more information um, get some more clinical information and put it all together, um, you know, to get the right answer. And so that's, that's, a, I think, a really, I mean, all of medicine is that way. But um, in pathology, I, I think we are maybe perhaps are a little bit more cognizant of that process just because of the number of specimens that come across your desk on a, on a given day. So it's, you know, some of the, some of the cases are really very interesting and very uncommon. And, and those are the ones that, you know, ultimately take more time uh, to think about and, and really confirm that, that, you know, that you've got the right answer before you send that report out. Now let's talk about dermatopathology then, because that became your subspecialty. And I'm curious, when did that start to develop? <laughs> it, it's funny. I always, I always tell people that I got interested in dermatopathology because of my work in prostate cancer. And um, it, I know it doesn't make a lot of okay. sense. It doesn't sound like it makes a lot of sense at, at the start. But um, my thesis, I was studying um, a protein called an integrin that's you know on the cell surface. And you know the dogma at the time in different types of tumors other than prostate was that this particular integrin was useful to help the cells move around, you know, to metastasize and, and really migrate out of the local area. And our work was demonstrating the opposite, actually. And um, so when I went to present my work at the first national meeting that I went to, my poster was really quite popular because a lot of people came to tell me that I was doing it wrong, um, and <laughs> which led to you know more studies. But the interesting thing there was about half the people that came were actually skin researchers. And so it turns out that this protein... Um, an integrin, which is part of the hemidesmosome, it's alpha-6, beta-4 integrin, is mutated in a number of genetic blistering disorders. And so there, we had described a new variant of the alpha-6 integrin, a truncated, constitutively, what we thought was a constitutively active um, subunit. And, and that attracted a lot of attention in this, the skin field. And so, uh, you know, that ended up leading to some collaborative work uh, looking at, you know, skin maturation models and what was happening with, you know, our protein there. And, you know, it's a little bit convoluted story, but so, you know, in prostate, we thought, oh, this, this truncated variant is really important for, um, you know, carcinogenesis, for, for movement and uh, migration and, you know, all of the above. But it turns out 
this protein is also present in normal skin and normal keratinocytes. And we couldn't quite understand the role of why this was happening, you know, why we were seeing this in, an, in a cancer and then also in normal skin as the keratinocytes matured. And, you know, so the cut, the short of that story is that, you know, as skin cells mature, they lose their access to the basal lamina, you know, which is, it has the ligands, the protein ligands like laminin that bind the alpha six beta four integrin. And when you sever those, um, that connection, the cell will, will die a, a type of programmed cell death. And so, you know, in order to allow for keratinocytes to mature up off of the basal layer um, or the basal lamina as they do in normal skin, we hypothesized that, you know, our truncated molecule was able to maintain the signal to those cells that it was still attached, you know, to the appropriate extracellular uh, protein. So it was very interesting work. And, and I didn't, even then, I didn't really think that I was, you know, I, I hadn't really chosen Dermpath as a subspecialty. And it wasn't until I got into my residency program and I trained at Mass General Hospital where the training is very subspecialized. So you'll spend a week, you know, looking at GI biopsies and a week looking at skin biopsies and whatever. So the first week that I was on skin, we just happened to have a number of blistering skin disorders that week. And it just clicked. I was like, this is really cool. And I know what's happening on a molecular level. And that was just it. You know, I was immediately sort of in love with the specialty and, um, you know, really never looked back, I think. That's interesting. What a, what a coincidence that it was the same thing that you were studying that you started to see in that. Okay. And that drew you in that direction. Was there like a, a, a mentor or something, a, a dermatopathologist maybe that helped you along into the derm path world? Oh, yeah. I was so fortunate to be at Mass General because that's where Marty Mim uh, was. And he's an internationally recognized expert in dermatopathology and dermatology. And, uh, you know, he was there. And it, it, for me, it was like meeting a celebrity, really. And he was just, you know, the nicest guy, um, brilliant on all, on every regard. And so I was fortunate to, you know, get to work with him quite a bit while I was there. And, you know, he's just one of those individuals with great energy and great knowledge and, you know, very inspirational person to be around as a you know new doctor for me at that point. Uh, so I, I count myself very fortunate to have known him. Yeah, I, a, a lot of people that I've talked with and myself included, like having a, a good mentor at the right time makes a huge difference in in a career path for, for a lot of people, just having that inspiration, uh, you know, like you said, kind of meeting a celebrity kind of mm -hmm. thing. It's, it's so important. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I wish, you know, so for a while I was, um, volunteering as a mentor at the university at the university of Arizona, where I trained and, um, and I'm not comparing myself celebrity mode to, uh, you know, working with Dr. Mim, but it, you know, there's, I, I think it's good work. Um, you know, cause so many kids don't, and I talk about kids in college, but, um, you know, so many people really don't have strong mentors and don't, 
you know, maybe just don't have the exposure to what's out there and what they can do. And, you know, I was thankful for my mentors in in college that put me on the track to do an MD PhD. So it's, it's really trying to give back to the community and, and especially, you know, young, young people that are moving through life and making decisions about what it is they're going to do for their careers. So I, I think it's very important. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Talking about mentors. I mean, that kind of leads into teaching in, in a way. And I know this is something that you're passionate about also. It, how, how did that start for you? <laughs> my, my first teaching experience was actually also in high school. And um, I can't quite remember the details of that other than we paired up with classmates and went to an elementary school. And my friend and I were doing, we were put into little small groups with kids that were probably in like fourth or fifth grade, maybe. And um, we had brought a cow eyeball uh, to dissect for the kids and to show them, you know, the lens and the sclera and the nerve and whatnot. And, you know, so my, uh, my good friend and I, we both have our gloves on. We're very sterile. We're being very careful with everything. And the, the kids at that age, I mean, they're just, fearless, right? So they're immediately, I want to touch the eyeball, I want to touch the lens. And, um, you know, they were just so enthusiastic and not, you know, not, not like grossed out or anything. And, it, you know, it was, it was fun to work with them. So, so I think I had exposure to how rewarding teaching can be at a, at a pretty early age. And then, uh, you know, it wasn't until probably medical school, that I got back to doing teaching with any sort of regularity. And that was through kind of a number of different um, philanthropy groups where we were teaching mostly, you know, kids in high school about, you know, medical relevant medical problems um, and, you know, safe practices and and things like that. And then as a resident, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have a joint appointment at Harvard. And so I was able to, work within the pathology lab. And uh, when we were, uh, my colleagues and I were teaching part of the, uh, the Darmpath uh, curriculum and working in the lab and, you know, helping people figure out how to look through the microscopes and stuff. So I've been fortunate to be able to teach through, you know, most of my career and most recently was involved with teaching dermatology residents um, you know, to do derm path because they they need to know that in order to pass their their board exams, and so it's it's something I enjoy. Certainly, not everybody enjoys teaching while they're they're working, but it's um, in pathology. I think it kind of lends itself pretty well. You know, it's easy to have somebody mm. um, you know sitting with you in the mornings when you're looking through cases and teach them about you know what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. Sure, that makes sense. I, do you have any any experiences of you know how your mentors kind of steered you in in your kind of in, into dermatal pathology or into pathology in general? Like, do you have stories how you've done that to or or for other people? I guess I don't really have any stories that I can grasp onto right away. Every now and then, one of the dermatology residents that we worked with would decide that they were interested in in moving into dermatal pathology. And so that was always fun. It's like, aha, we've re- <laughs> we've snagged another one for our discipline. But I, I, for me, I think it's been more. I think most of the people I've 
I've taught actually are already sort of predisposed to going into science and, you know, already have that interest. And so I like to think of it as showing them here, here's an example of something that you could do and and giving them an idea and sort of a vision of of what that really looks like. In in addition to dramatic pathology and teaching and all these other interests that you have, and some we're going to still going to talk about, you're also interested in digital pathology and artificial intelligence. And I feel like DermPath kind of lends itself to utilizing these these technologies. So let's talk about this. As far as like, what do you think of the current state of pathology in digital pathology and artificial intelligence? And by this, I mean like, do you think it's as far along as it should be in these areas? Oh, I think it's an amazing time to be in pathology with regard to artificial intelligence and digital pathology. Um, I I feel that the field is just growing in leaps and bounds right now. Um, And and really, you know, I think medicine, or at least pathology as we know it today, I think it's going to be dramatically different in, you know, five or 10 years from now, Uh, you know, for the better. I I don't really envision that computers are going to take over the hospitals or anything, but, um, you know, the, the studies that I find especially fascinating have been um, a lot of studies out of Memorial Sloan Kettering that have looked at um, like breast biopsies and uh, prostate biopsies and they will, They've, they're teaching the computers, you know, to read these these uh, biopsies. And what's really fascinating to me is that the computers are really good at actually picking out cases just based on the histology that have underlying specific genetic mutations. So, you know, in order for us to confirm that, you know, we have to take this specimen and send it off to a tertiary referral center they do some type of, you know, PCR on it or, or you know, whatever, and um, fish testing sometimes, you know, to get these answers that a computer can predict with remarkable accuracy. Um, and that's just one example, I think, of the power that artificial intelligence is going to lend to us. Um, I have also seen some, some areas of using artificial intelligence algorithms to identify um, melanocytic, you know, atypical melanocytic proliferations in the epidermis. And so I, I think with the idea that we're going to scan every biopsy just to make sure that you're not missing something, because, you know, uh, it's not uncommon in skin path to have a biopsy for a tumor, you know, a basal cell or, or some other entity, and to have an um, incidental melanoma in situ in the background. And, you know, here in the Southwest, we see quite a lot of melanoma and some of it can be very subtle. So I, I think, you know, I, I, to me, I'm really excited to see that technology continue to, to grow and, um, you know, really contribute to the field. So, so yeah, I, th- I think it's very exciting. You know, are we as far along as we should be? Um, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty excited. I, I think we're making good progress. I remember as a resident going to um, you know, like the CAP general meetings. And there was always, you know, in the um, sort of exhibit hall, somebody with a digital pathology set up. And, you know, to me, I would see that then and that, you know, wasn't really that long ago, thinking, oh, that will be 20 years from now. And 
well, gee, it's, it is almost 20 years from now. And, and, and now, you know, the technology is feasible. So all the limitations that we had previously, you know, have been worked out and, or at least optimized. So, so I think that it's just going to continue that way. I'm, I'm really excited about the prospect of personalized medicine, um, which yes. I think artificial intelligence is going to help with the, you know, as well. Yes, for sure. For sure. Do you ever look at the the work that's being done with AI in prostate cancer and, and think like, ah, oh, I, I could have been a part of that? <laughs> oh, for sure. I, I think that, I, I think that that's just very exciting work. And, um, you know, you make decisions. There's, it's, there's so many exciting opportunities I think available to you and, you know, the, the interesting thing about people, I think at my stage in my career, is you talk to them and you find out, well, how did you get to where you are? And it's always, well, this, you know, fluke kind of experience happened over here, which led me to meet this person, which led me to have an interest in something else. And here I am. And, you know, it could just as easily have ended up, you know, doing uh, artificial intelligence and prostate cancer. Um, <laughs> so I haven't ruled that out yet. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's good. Do you think, uh, you know, digital pathology is going to become and, and, and AI as well? Is it going to become like a necessary part of pathology? Like everyone, like you'll have to use it. Um, you know, everyone will be using it. There'll be widespread use. I would not be surprised by that. I, I think that, you know, from my understanding of how digital pathology and how artificial intelligence could actually really help workflow issues in the hospital, you know, so when, when you're in the hospital or you're in a, you know, in, in the clinic and you get a, um, you know, pile of, of cases that need to be read out, you know, I envision artificial intelligence going through and scanning all of those cases and sort of prioritizing, you know, which are the ones that are malignant that need to be looked at and which are the benign ones that maybe could be looked at later in the day. Uh, you know, cause timing is everything in the pathology lab. I mean, you know, you have to, if you're not able to sign the case out, looking at it just on the histology, you have to order stains and, you know, depending on how the lab really functions, the sooner you get those orders in, the sooner you're going to be able to get them back and, you know, have an answer uh, for a patient who's waiting at the end of, you know, at the end of the line. Okay. That, that makes sense. All right. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Tracy Davis. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists like us for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhirov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. And now for the rest of my conversation with Dr. Tracy Davis on the People of Pathology podcast. In, in addition to dermatopathology, you're also a certified professional coach. 
And this is something you've become very involved with. And you've got a newsletter, uh, which we'll talk about, and a blog, which we'll talk about. Um, but I, it, in in reading about how you started as a coach, it seems like it came from your own experience in working with a coach. And I wonder if you can tell me that story of how that happened. Oh, yes, absolutely. And probably, I'm thinking maybe five years ago was my first experience with a coach. And, you know, I was struggling. I was, I felt kind of on the brink of burnout. And I came across a program aimed at physicians that were exactly where I felt. And I thought, great, I can take this, you know, 90 day coaching, you know, sort of class and, you know, as a client. And when I'm done with that, then I can quit medicine and I won't feel guilty about it. Like that was, that was actually the the thought process for me enrolling in my first coaching Wow. Um, You know, engagement. And and as you can imagine, about a month into it, I, um, you know, and this involved a lot of coaching on a weekly basis. And about a month into it, I started to see things differently. And I realized, you know, a big part of this is me and how I am interacting with sort of the the difficulties, you know, that I was, um, you know, dealing with in, in the lab and um, in the, you know, in the office. And it really, I mean, it really changed things for me, you know, and, and it wasn't, you know, sometimes I think people think that coaching is like, oh, you know, you don't like this, well, just think something different. And, you know, your life will be better. And, and it's, you know, that, I mean, that's obviously never going to help anybody. But, um, you know, the metaphor that I like to think of with coaching is, is that a good coach will help shine the light you know, in the areas that you're not looking at, that you're not thinking about. And then once you see that, you know, you can't help but see the world a little bit differently at that point. And so, you know, I, I finished, I, I finished that program and I was just so impressed with how helpful that was not only for me, but, you know, for other physicians that were in the group, you know, in my little uh, cohort there. And so in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, this is something I would really like to do at some point in the future. And, um, you know, but I kind of put it on the back burner and, um, you know, continued working and, you know, really enjoyed what I was doing and was really coming at it with a very different sort of energy and and mindset. And, um, you know, up until, uh, let's see, up and up until, Last year, really, I guess. Um, last year, kind of a number of things happened in both my sort of personal and professional life, and it, and it made me realize that you know if I don't do this, like when am I going to do it? And and that was, I think, kind of the final push that I needed to to say, yeah, you know, this is something that's really interesting to me, and I want to pursue that. And so I. Um, you know, enrolled in a coach in a coach training program, an accredited coach training program back in um, July, and it, you know, I it, I'm on a number of different sort of social media sites, you know, and have a lot of exposure to physicians. Many, you know, some of which have become coaches, and mm-hmm. I remember thinking, you know, the the common thread with with so many physician coaches that I had encountered, at least. Was, was that they said that the experience was completely transformational. 
you know, in their lives. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that sounds really good. I, you know, who wouldn't want that? And I, so when I, I started my program, I, I, I think sort of the, this, the doubts kind of set in and I was like, I, you know, I don't know that this is really going to, you know, change my life in, in any way. And I, I was a little resistant, I think, to start with. And, and maybe a couple months into it, um, I, I really did start to experience just profound change in my life in all areas. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, when people say, oh, this has been transformational, you know, sometimes it sounds a little bit, uh, I don't know, overselling it or something. But, sure. you know, for me, for me, the experience really, really was positively transformational. And, you know, I, I hardly, I, I feel like I have come back to who I really am. Um, you know, through this process, it's, it's absolutely recommended. (laughs) Okay. Okay. It seems like physician coaches and physician coaching is becoming more popular now, or or maybe we're just hearing about it more now, but I wonder like, why is that, why is that needed now? You know what I mean? There is a lot of burnout out there among physicians and, uh, you know, uh, other healthcare workers for sure. But, but I wonder like, why is this becoming so popular now? Do you have like any thoughts on, on that? I I do. I think that, you know, and, and I'll just preface this with a story that, you know, my first job out of fellowship was a real struggle for me. And had I known anything about coaching at that point in my life, uh, retrospectively, I probably really would have benefited from working with a coach. And, but I didn't, you know, so I, kind of struggle through it on my own. Um, and I feel that, that now coaching has, you know, partly because of the pandemic, I, I think also been elevated to a much more prominent place in, on, on social media. So I, I see more doctors and, and not, you know, I mean, not just doctors, I mean, every, everyone is, I think, more aware that what coaching is and, you know, what it potentially can do for them. And, you know, so in the past, I feel that there's probably always been this need for coaches, for physicians, but that I don't think the visibility was there, you know, that, Hey, this is something that could help me. And, you know, in physicians, I I don't think really talk about, you know, how stressful, you know, work can be. Um, or at least, you know, up until recently, I, I feel like, you know, there's been a real shift in, in medicine in general. And, and a lot of that, I think, was spurred on by the pandemic, quite frankly. Um, you know, that was trying for everybody in the country. And I think it promoted more physicians talking about what's going on and how, you know, how they are struggling and recognizing that other people, other physicians are, are also, you know, struggling with the same things. And, you know, so I, I think it's really, I guess, to summarize that, I, I think it's just the um, a collective awareness of what coaching is and that it's out there and that it can actually help people. Um, it is contributing to the popularity of, um, of not just physician coaches, but coaches, you know, for everybody. I, I think everyone should work with a coach is, is my personal bias. Sure. Sure. I, I, I actually kind of agree with that. Um, 
something else that you're working on is as part of uh, your, your kind of coaching studies is you're working on a certificate in it's called happiness studies. Now, this one seems a, a little bit out there, but in, in reading, and you know, you've written about this, and it's actually there is a, there's a lot of science behind it. So, I, I want to talk about this one. What 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 is happiness studies? Yes, so happiness. So, I'm working on a certificate through the Happiness Studies Academy, which was founded by Tal Ben Shahar, and he is a world renowned. Um, positive psychologist and, uh, you know, has, has taught, you know, at the Ivy league level. And, you know, he, he tells this story of, you know, we have classes to study literally everything and nobody actually studies sort of the science of happiness and well-being. And, you know, so that was what prompted him to, I think, establish, you know, a, a, a really quantitative way to study happiness, both the theoretical um, aspects of that and the, um, you know, the practical aspects um, of, of being happier. And so the certificate that I'm working on is a one year online um, curriculum that, you know, it is goes through the whole gamut, sort of the history of happiness and how we think about that in our day-to-day lives, how that's embedded in history uh, to, you know, practical things that you can do in your life to bring about more happiness. And I mean, who doesn't want to be more happy? You know, I, I think oh, that, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, so my experience in, in writing about this was I, it, you know, initially have been targeting physician audiences, but, you know, the response has been, that what I'm talking about is, is pretty universal. You know, everybody is interested in, you know, what can they do to be happier in their lives? And yeah, I have, I have nothing, nothing but great things to say about the curriculum there. And I don't know if you've ever encountered Tal Ben-Shahar. He's got a lot of online, um, uh, you know, videos and, uh, you know, is known in multiple different countries. He's just really, um, really a neat individual to, to work with. Yeah. I'll, I'll link some of those, uh, some of those videos in the show notes so people can check them out for themselves. But this is, this is interesting because most people it's like, okay, especially physicians, it's like, okay, I'm just going to work myself to death and, uh, you know, and, and never be happy really, or, or fulfilled. And you're through this, you're kind of saying, actually you can be happy or happier at least, um, and, and, uh, you know, it is, it is possible to, to have a career and be happy. Absolutely. I, I think that, you know, in my, in my own coaching business, you know, I've run into so many people that, that have accomplished everything sort of on their agenda list. You know, it's like, okay, get the job, get the house, get the, you know, everything. And they're like, this is my happy list. I should do all these things and I'm going to be happy. And and they find out that they're not happy. Mm -hmm. And whereas on paper, it looks like they should be. And, you know, it kind of leads to, you know, a lot of stress, especially for physicians. I mean, it's such a long training process you know, to get to that point. And so many people um, that I encounter, at least, you know, start to second guess, like, wow, did I just waste all of this time training to become, 
a physician, you know, maybe this isn't what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, what I find out is, you know, for many of them, their core values have changed since, you know, when they were in their twenties and they made a decision to, you know, go into medicine and, and as they get older, you know, their core values change and they're not quite as, um, not quite as focused on the things that help them excel to become a physician and to excel to go through through medicine and, and you know core values. I mean, there's nothing good or bad about them. It's just these are the things that are important to me as an individual, and recognizing those and how you know what you are doing in your life fits with what's actually most important to you is for me. I think sort of the secret to being happier and more fulfilled in life. Okay. Okay. I, I think I understand that. That makes sense. Tell me about uh, core energy dynamics, because this is also something else you've written about. And this, I, I found this really interesting as far as the difference between the two uh, orientations. Right. So, so core energy is a coaching um, methodology from IPEC, which is uh, the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, which is the training program. Um, that I'm certified through. And core energy is the, the best way really to explain that is, is thinking about, you know, how we interact with the world around us. So if you're wearing a pair of blue colored sunglasses, you know, the world is going to look blue to you. Whereas if you're wearing a pair of green colored uh, sunglasses, it's going to look green. And, you know, how we interact and interpret the world around us is is sort of through these filters of um of of what we call core energy and you know so just the brief kind of overview of that is um you know there's there are seven sort of levels and and really it's just a terminology to explain these different you know mindsets so at the lowest level you know a, a person has sort of a helpless mentality that the world is happening and everything is completely out of their control. It's, it's this sort of victim mentality. Um, and at the highest levels of, of core energy, the idea is that I am co-creating my existence and, and really, you know, a, a very polar opposite, you know, type of mindset. And, you know, there's, there's really no, uh, first of all, people aren't really just one of these core energies, you know, various sort of stressors and, and things that happen during our day might invoke, you know, different responses. So core energy coaching is focused on bringing awareness to how we interact with the world. And, you know, by the, the next step of that is something called core dynamics, um, and core dynamics is also a methodology from IPEC. Um, and that looks at both the, the types of things that influence our energy and how we interact with the world around us, um, as, as well as sort of disciplines for living um, a more fulfilled life. And, you know, so it's, it's taking coaching you know, kind of from more of a surface level to diving down deeper to figure out really at the core of what's going on, you know, what is holding somebody back from moving forward in their life. Um, it, it's, it's a really neat, it, it's a really neat uh, coaching methodology. And so core dynamics, there's actually four different 
uh, sort of specialty areas in that. And I'm certified currently in two of those areas, one of which is well-being and one of which is leadership. Um, and I'm working on, you know, two additional ones. I, I think of the core energy is, is the sort of here's the, the basics of how we interact with the world and core dynamics with getting into the real nitty gritty sort of details. And so there, there are influencers, which, which influence our moment to moment kind of interactions with, you know, people and, you know, stressful things. And, uh, whereas the, the disciplines are more long-term life, uh, you know, disciplines really for, for achieving fulfillment and, um, you know, well-being in life. Okay. So it sounds like this, a lot of this is kind of working on your, uh, mindset and how you, how you look at the, the situations that you're in. Absolutely. You know, coaching, I mean, there, there's a number of different methodologies for coaching mm-hmm. out there. And, you know, at the end of the day, for the most part, we're all talking about pretty much the same types of things, you know, same types of becoming aware of our mindset. And once you are aware, then you're conscious you can consciously choose, you know, if that's how you want to react or maybe you want to react differently. And and so we, you know, we put all these different spins on it and, you know, we call them different things, but, you know, it's, it really is working on becoming aware of why we do the things that we do and bringing that into the light so that you can no longer, um, so that you no longer just react out of default um, without thinking about why, you know, the guy cutting you off in traffic is making you so angry, for instance. Okay. I like that. That, that makes sense. Um, now I, I mentioned kind of in passing earlier, you're, you're, you have a blog. This is called the happy physician blog. And I'm curious about why you, why you wanted to start this. And then I want to get into like, how do you, how do you decide what to write about? Right. So I decided you know, there's a lot of people that I think don't, you know, maybe are skeptical about coaching, what it is, you know, might not want to commit to actually signing up with a coach. And sure. I, I feel that, that I, I felt like I just wanted to reach a larger audience to put good out into the world. I mean, really, that's what it comes down to is like, I, you know, there are a lot of messages that I can put out there that will help people be happier. And, you know, maybe that might help them through a particular problem, or maybe that might actually change their mind or shift their mind about, you know, something important in their life. And, you know, I thought, well, if I can do that, especially, you know, right now during this real trying time with, with medicine, you know, medicine is, um, physicians really, I think are kind of struggling right now as a, as a whole collectively. Yes. And so I thought, you know, this would be a great, a great opportunity to, you know, just put something out there. That's not, you know, in your face, I want to coach you or anything like that. I really just wanted to introduce ideas to people. And, um, and it's been great. I've, I've received, you know, what's funny is that I get a lot of feedback through messages and stuff and, and quite a number of the people that have really become sort of my biggest fans are, are actually not physicians. I, so to me, I think that's, 
inspiring to know that the message that I'm putting out there is really resonating with with a lot of different people and it is applicable to things outside of medicine. Now, then what about like the, the topics that you write about? Uh, these have to be I, I, these have to be sort of inspired by what you're learning from your, your coaching studies, right? Yeah, I, I probably draw um, inspiration from a number of different sources. So, um, you know, some of some of the topics are are relevant because I've, you know, recently had a coaching client where this was something important. And I thought, hey, this is, you know, kind of a neat teaching point, if you will, um, okay. you know, to, to put out there. And, it, it, you know, and of course, I don't ever put anybody's, you know, personal information on there. So I change it a, a bit. But, um, you know, so some of it's from my own experience in my own business. Some of it is from, you know, I'm kind of a voracious reader. So I, I love reading. I follow a number of different master coaches and, you know, we'll be inspired by topics and things that, you know, that, that to me seem relevant to, um, you know, my, my reader population. And, and of course the happiness studies thing, um, you know, kind of plays right into that. I, I feel like, I feel like everybody should actually get a certificate in happiness studies just because it's really fascinating mm-hmm. work. And so I would say those are probably the three, you know, main areas, um, but, you know, just living, um, you know, even my own just personal experience in life, I'll find myself, you know, frustrated or struggling with something in particular. And then, you know, I may work with my coach on that and then, you know, use that as inspiration for a topic to talk about as well. So it's, um, I feel like I have some more ideas than time to write though. <laughs> mm, I know the feeling. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, so the last question then, as we said, you are a certified professional coach and you do take clients. Now, when someone signs up for coaching with you, w- you know, what are they going to get? What can you tell me about your methods, your process? Yeah, absolutely. I always start my sessions well, I always start with a free phone call, you know, just to find out what somebody's actually looking for and, and to assure that really I can, I feel like I can help them because, uh, you know, I, I want people to benefit. And if they're not going to benefit from me, I want to put them in contact with somebody that's appropriate uh, for them. And so after having that, you know, so much comes out of that first session because I would say all of the coaching um, engagements that I are do are highly uh, personalized. And so I, I follow, um, I, I use core energy as sort of the main coaching methodology. I do kind of pull in from some other uh, methodologies that I've had exposure to um, and trained in. And then it really, you know, it kind of depends just what the person, you know, what is the big struggle and what is it that they're really hoping to accomplish so, you know, the coaching that I do, I mean, you know, there's some coaching that's very accountability related, sort of superficial, you know, oh, I want to lose weight and I need somebody to help me put together a plan and be accountable. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, the, the coaching that I do is, is not really at that level. It's more uh, kind of diving deep to figure out what, what has brought you to this point in your life now. And, and where is the struggle really at? Because if we don't fix that, we're never going to achieve anything for any length of time. So 
um, you know, one of my friends always uses the analogy of core energy coaching is like, um, you know, pulling weeds. So if you just trim off the weeds at, at the top level, they're going to come back at some point that you really have to dig down and, and pull the root out and, and deal with, uh-huh. you know, what, what is really going on, you know, in, in someone's heart uh-huh. it's, that's holding them back. So, you know, I do that. And then most, most engagements now, I also provide, um, something called an energy leadership index assessment. And, you know, you've probably heard of like personality assessments like DISC and Myers-Briggs. Um, sure. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the ELI is um, a proprietary assessment through IPEC. And it's kind of more like an attitude assessment. You know, so what is your attitude towards, you know, a number of different things in life? And so, so in comparison to personality, assessments where personality traits are typically like fixed traits. Um, you know, your, your attitude can actually be changed and, you know, through, through coaching and through, you know, a change of perspective and a change of mindset. And, uh, you know, I find that the ELI is a very, very useful, very interesting assessment and, and people always, I feel that people always gain a lot of personal insight after, you know, taking the, taking the um, assessment, which is just an online, you know, 20 minute, uh, you know, fill in the blank kind of thing. And then um, I follow that up with a one hour sort of deep, you know, personalized debrief of that individual's results. So, you know, there are studies which have been performed through IPEC that look at the person's, a person's what's called the average resonating energy level. So sort of where you spend most of your time, you know, are you in a mostly victim mindset or are you sort of in a helper mindset? Okay. And, you know, the, the higher average level you are is correlated with increased levels of fulfillment in life over 12 different, you know, areas. Um, so, that, you know, there's a lot to be said for, knowing how to change your sort of energetic presentation, you know, to the world. And, you know, and and this is all, I mean, the neat thing is that it's all based on science and it's, um, you know, it's measurable and, um, you know, and you can demonstrate change, you know, over time as well. So, you know, that's kind of the long rambling example, (laughs) you know, what it is that, that I do, but, but I think it just underscores that, you know, it's an individualized process for people. You know, I, I pull on a, a number of different uh, methodologies to really put together the perfect plan, um, you know, for, for a, a given client, depending on what it is they're hoping to achieve. Okay. Okay. I like it. That's a great explanation. And I will include a link to your website. So people, if they want to work with you, uh, they can get in touch with you. That'd be great. You know, Dr. Davis, this has been a really fascinating conversation. And I know we've been working on getting this together for a while. Uh, so I'm glad we finally were able to pull this off. Uh, Me yeah, too. Yeah, it, it was it was great to learn more about your career and learn more about your coaching process. Uh, Dr. Tracy Davis, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis, so much. This has been so fun. And um, I, I'm super excited to get this message out there. Thank you. 
If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a preview from my interview with Dr. Christina Arnold, where she talks about her experience being a pathologist and a coach. What was it that inspired you yourself to become a coach? Was it your own, this kind of path that you were on or was it something else? It, it was that I saw such profound changes in such a deep way in such a short time, like in one week to start letting go of all this suffering I had been holding on for one, four, five, eight years. For that to all be unraveled in a week, I thought, wow, I, I, there, there's so many people in medicine who are just like me. I know I'm not alone. I know my story of feeling burnt out is a very common story. Most people will probably feel this at some point in their lives. And I can help those people. I can share what I, what I, what now seems like common knowledge um, to me because I've been doing this intense work for eight weeks. I never had these thoughts before. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Christina Arnold in episode 39. Okay, great big thanks to Dr. Tracy Davis. Now, we've been working on this interview for well over a year. And then things were happening in her life, and then things were happening in my life. So I'm glad that our schedules finally aligned and we were able to have this conversation. And it was very interesting. And we even talked for a while after we were finished recording, just talking about the mindset approach that she was explaining earlier in the podcast. In fact, Dr. Davis recommended a book to me, which I'd like to recommend to you. It's called The Gap and the Gain. And this book is all about the mindset approach and how to reframe your experiences and even your past experiences as wins and learning experiences. And one other thing that I wanted to talk about during the interview, but, that, but we didn't get to it, was the orientations when it comes to core dynamics. So this is basically two different perspectives that you can have. The first one being the mastery orientation, and this deals with focusing on the process and focusing on learning throughout that process. The opposite being the performance orientation, which focuses only on achieving the goal. So the way Dr. Davis explained it to me was, if you think of a road trip in a car, the mastery orientation deals with the entire journey, all of your experiences along that trip, whereas the performance orientation only deals with the start of the trip and the end of the trip and kind of disregards everything that happens in the middle, which really, if you've ever had a long road trip, everything that happens along the way is kind of the fun part. And she writes a lot more about these two orientations in one of her blog posts. Of course, the blog is called The Happy Physician, and you can find a link in the show notes to that. And in fact, if you're listening to this on release day, which is October 30th, her latest blog post came out actually yesterday. And this is all about imposter syndrome, which is another thing that I'm very familiar with. So that was helpful for me as well. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter or X or whatever it's called now. I'm at People of Path, or you can just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thanks for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.